Developing Organs of Political Power. Revised Edition. By the Maoist Communist Party Organizing Committee. Edited for listening by For the People, Chicago, and the Zine Reader Collective. Part 0. A Foreword from the Editor. The Maoist Communist Party Organizing Committee, or the MCPOC, was a pre-party formation created in 2017 to begin construction of a vanguard revolutionary party amongst the participating Maoist elements in the so-called United States. Their public-facing mass work organization, For the People, or FTP, was formed in 2017, and this document, written in 2018, provides a guide for what FTP, or any mass work organization of Maoist discipline, should strive to do through their practices of serving the people. It walks the reader through the ascending stages of building power through organizing around the material needs of the neighborhoods FTPs organize in. It is ultimately a document about upholding the mass line and putting the needs of the community, and the need for change, above all. Since the writing of this document, the MCPOC had resolved that the level of struggle in the Maoist movement was far, far too underdeveloped to have the formation of a genuine vanguard party be the chief objective of any one organization. As a result, the MCPOC decentralized into a national formation of FTPs, which saw many former MCPOC members devolve or liquidate into their local political activities, causing the collapse of many once strong FTP chapters, such as the Atlantic City, New Jersey chapter, which is later referenced in this text. Amongst the remaining FTP chapters, it can be said a much higher level of Maoist discipline and unity is maintained between our many still active comrades, who, like the authors of this text, still seek to build power for the communities they serve, and remain dedicated and united in the face of the constant unforeseen difficulties associated with supporting organizations such as these, at these beginning stages. In the year 2022, we as FTP find ourselves at the beginning of a new era in this organization's history. Many of our chapters are beginning to find solid roots in the neighborhoods they work in, and many of our comrades, both new and MCP alum, are continuing to develop themselves in response to their local conditions of struggle, and are reaching critical thresholds of organizing capacity and discipline. We know many things we did not know as the MCPOC, and have reached a level of struggle that now allows the on-the-ground experience to principally lead our development as revolutionary organizers, as much as theoretical study and historical knowledge principally led the MCPOC. From this new footing, we as FTP look to succeed where the MCPOC failed, and we aim to play leading roles in bringing the level of struggle in this country into that which truly necessitates the formation of a revolutionary party worthy of the name, MCP. Even with all of our vast changes and overhauls since its original writing, we still find developing organs of political power, to be fundamental in the training of all comrades, and to the overall steering of our organization. We would also inform you that this version has been updated and revised, as to expand and yet further develop many of the ideas offered here, as well as give more recent examples and the lessons learned from our organizing efforts. We hope you find it as useful as we have. In Solidarity, For the People, Chicago. Part 1. Stop Dealing in Abstractions. It is often said of an ideal revolutionary society, that's nice. But it's not realistic. Throughout the course of mass work, it is made abundantly clear that most people desire for a change in the capitalist imperialist world system. Many desire it to be outright eradicated. People do not have a very hard time envisioning what an alternative society would look like, one involving sharing, cooperation, labor which is both fulfilling and answers the material needs of the people, collective decision-making, and an end to injustice everywhere. While many people easily grasp this concept, they for the most part only do so in the abstract sense. The word used above to describe a revolutionary society, ideal, illustrates this error in thinking. Revolution, for many, is an abstract idea. It is just an ideal, and therefore it is, quote, not realistic. What is a realistic society to the people? 
Is it one filled with exploitation, alienation, survival, strife, violence, apathy, greed, and scarcity? This kind of society is the only, realistic, one to the people because it is the one they all live in. Ideas, after all, come from material conditions. We recognize that ideas derive from one's experience in production, pursuit of science and the arts, and class struggle. Many believe greed is inherent in quote, human nature, unquote, because they experience greed from the ruling class every day. They see how only selfishness can lead to success under capitalism. Many believe exploitation is inherent in human society because they themselves are exploited for their labor power just to survive. They cannot put their faith in a future world in which people are not exploited because such a world does not exist, and neither does a clear path to it. Many believe alienation from each other is the only possible reality, because under capitalism, workers must compete against each other for better pay, better positions of work, and higher status. Many believe scarcity will always persist because waste is a constant persistence in their lives. Mao writes, quote, In class society everyone lives as a member of a particular class, and every kind of thinking, without exception, is stamped with the brand of a class. Unquote. Many working people believe they will never have power because they do not have it now. Many working people believe that the current electoral system is the best chance they have to achieve reform, because they live in a society where voting is the only option for them to express their voice, despite how little their voice actually matters. However, a growing number of people also know that the political system does not currently represent them. The broad masses of underpaid workers, those without college education, those who constantly sit on the fence between poverty and stability, and those who are poor, all understand that they have no power, and that they lack political representation as a class. The majority of this section of the working class, the lower strata, understand that liberal democracy is an illusion. This is because they have gained nothing from the capitalist imperialist world system. Meanwhile, higher strata workers, i.e. the petty bourgeois, those who reside in the developments of the suburbs, the gentrifiers, the successful business owners, and those with high-paying jobs and a college education, despite still being powerless in the grand scheme, are much more likely to believe that the system works because, materially speaking, it does for them. The more capital a person has direct access to, the more this political system explicitly represents their interests. People believe what their experience tells them. What good is it to lecture a poor person on the benefits of joining your party, your collective, or your protest? These things come and go, and the capitalist imperialist world system has not changed in their favor. What good is it to lecture a worker on the necessity of building socialism? To them, these are just abstractions. These ideas are rooted in nothing material. They are only ideas. Both a high percentage of the working people and a much higher percentage of self-proclaimed communists deal in nothing but abstractions. Communists especially just constantly rant and rave about how the system does not work and stress the need for a newer society, yet the sum total of those efforts alone only amount to being the loudest voice screaming, somebody do something. Instead of establishing revolutionary programs and points of struggle, or even directing the people towards the ones that already exist, these quote, communists instead work hard to limit our entire worldview and efforts to the thin realm of discussion and moral aspiration. They are why people think communists only represent ideals, and not change. The need for building something real, something material, in which the people can take part in and begin to have their own power becomes apparent. Part 2. Relationship between the construction of mass base areas and the construction of political power for the people. It is so easy to say, go and build power for the people, but it is another thing entirely to go and do it. Power to the people is not just a good slogan, it is the essence of our work. To build a revolutionary mass movement, the construction of mass base areas is essential, and is the first broad stage. A mass base area can be generally defined as, quote, 
an area in which the power of the state and bourgeoisie must contend with the power of the organized, revolutionary masses. Unquote. It is an area in which revolutionary struggle can be waged, where the skeletal structures of socialism are being erected. A mass base area has five universal characteristics, each of which informs and develops the next. 1. A leading body of organizers, comprised of the politically advanced masses. 2. Self-organization of the broad masses to directly represent their needs, their ideas, and their concerns as well as to build solutions to the problems in their areas. 3. A culture of rapid and constant mobilization of the masses to assert their power and freedom from state-sanctioned exploitation and oppression. 4. Mass rejection of state and corporate power, through a broadly established baseline revolutionary consciousness of the people. 5. Militant capabilities to defend revolutionary gains and protect newly found sovereignty. The unifying aspect of all these primary characteristics, is the active participation of the masses in the attempt to change conditions. Without a revolutionary people, there is no revolutionary movement. Direct actions without the active participation of the masses, of the community, while well-intentioned, often do not lead to long-term change, and many times lead to unnecessary exposure and repression for those involved, which hinder their abilities to organize directly with the people. Statements and proclamations, without the ideas and participation of the community, only lead to isolation and to stagnation. We must always remember, it is the people who lead the revolution. As communists, we aspire to their revolution, not ours. Therefore, the organs of political power we seek to create through our organizing are thus the new structures which enable, and demand, the active participation of the masses. Organs of political power are community-led institutions, and are the primitive foundation of what the new society will look like. Their practice will shape the formation of the post-capitalist world. They are responsible for the long-term sustainment of mass base areas during the period of a revolution, and must be developed to lead the period of post-revolutionary construction, and they will be even further expanded to bring about the final abolition of all class society. Organs of political power will represent the direct will of the people. They will constitute the essence of working class power. Through direct engagement between revolutionary organizations and these organs, the revolutionary movement can advance. As such, it is the first, and most essential, task of our organizers to establish a base of contact, trust, and connection with the communities they serve. Part 2a. Rely on the advance to lead the intermediate. When conducting political work in the community, it is often considered by Maoists that there are three broad sections, the politically advanced, the intermediate, and the politically backwards. The Communist Party of the Philippines explains, quote, the advanced ranks of the masses have a clear understanding of their basic conditions and are ready to struggle to change it. The backward part of the masses meanwhile can be easily influenced by backward ways of thinking and may be resistant to struggle for change. The middle part meanwhile may understand the need for change but are reluctant and hesitant to move for action. Unquote. So in any given area of work, there are those from among the masses who are willing and able to change the conditions which cause their problems. They are the natural leaders of their communities. They live to serve others. They freely speak their mind and share their ideas. Their homes and spaces are used as a common space for others in their community to gather socially, to celebrate, and to grieve. Thus, they are the most likely to move the people, as they have developed concrete relationships with many in their neighborhoods. The people will most likely listen to them, and they should be relied upon firmly for this reason. Because of their close relationships with the people, and their acute understanding of the problems affecting the community, a revolutionary organization that serves the people must of course serve the whole of the community, but must also be capable of identifying, including, and elevating the role that the advanced members of that community have in their organizing. We must gather ideas from them, and commit to a protracted struggle with them to develop plans of action for mobilizing the people to assert their own power. Part 2b. 
the people must be organized to assert their own power and expand it. With the advanced masses from the area leading the way by example, the politically intermediate people, who represent the majority of the masses, can begin to witness the necessity for organization and can take the first steps to asserting their own power. Because alienation and competition, both manifestations of liberalism, are conditioned into the people from birth as a direct consequence of existing in a capitalist imperialist world system, the tendency for fracturing and fighting emerges during any mass organization of the people, and actively prevents them from working together. The leading group must help alleviate these problems, primarily by getting the people organized to voice their problems, concerns, and ideas in a constructive manner. These ideas will directly influence the course of the leading group, and another avenue of further political education is opened. Throughout this process, the people will gradually begin to understand, as a whole, the need for further cooperation and collective decision-making. Principled unity in these community bodies must be established and maintained by the revolutionaries and community members who establish them. This can only be done through long-term concurrent projects of building trust and connection as well as building political unity through education and constant and patient struggle with the backwards or otherwise anti-democratic ideas you may encounter. But, when established with firm foundations, these new bodies of community organization will serve as the real means from which the people will directly control what is produced, how resources are distributed, and what demands must be made on institutional powers. Part 2c. To assert power, power must be taken. Power is taken from the state through the mobilization of the masses around a set of demands. The tactics for accomplishing this are numerous and won't be discussed in detail here. When demands are met, and victory is accomplished, the people develop a greater understanding for why the state is not necessary, why the capitalist ruling class is not necessary, and how they can further develop their own structures of power. Part 2d. Outright rejection of state power leads to the creation of dual power. When the state and capitalists must bargain with the people to get anything done, then it can be said that a state of dual power in a mass base area has been reached. At this advanced stage, the organs of political power are on the trajectory of reaching full control, and the concept of revolution turns from just an abstract ideal to a serious prospect in the eyes of the people. Under these conditions, the state is threatened and responds with violence and coercion, both physical and economic, to protect the interests of the capitalist ruling class. Part 2e. Greater consolidation of defensive capabilities to resist state repression. In contrast to most forms of Marxist-Leninist activism in the so-called United States, the development of organs of political power demands the essential and decisive inclusion of the working people in their own community institutions, and is not simply a militant assertion of correct ideas by some isolated group of cadre. A real revolution will be decided by the people, and if they do not support or have any connection to your cause, you will find yourself completely exposed and handily dealt with by the hands of fascists or the state. Therefore, Defensive capabilities must be developed throughout the construction of mass base areas, and a very high level of unity between fighting forces should be achieved in order to resist the inevitable violent response from the state. When organized effectively, the broad masses of the people will give support to them, and will participate in defense actions, because they will be defending their own sovereignty and right to democracy. The importance of utilizing all sympathetic fighting groups to resist state repression and encroachment on free territory is of the utmost importance. The successful development of the United Front up to this point will determine how the course of armed struggle will go. Remember, a mass base area is constructed over time, through a protracted period of struggle, and the key characteristics can be developed unevenly depending on the particular conditions. It is always important to remember, start with the general, move to the particular. Part 3. Using for the people mass organizations to develop organs of political power. The for the people, FTP, Mass organizations across the country offer great insight into how organs of political power can be developed. 
For FTP Atlantic City, New Jersey, this process is underway. The advanced masses are already beginning to take leadership positions, call for further action, and are getting more people organized. In the Ibany Park Division of FTP Chicago, they too are reaching a critical threshold in creating self-organizing bodies of community power. If revolutionary organizations can provide the means, the space, the education, and program, then the masses will take the initiative. What follows is the general strategy for how the FTPAC and FTP shy chapters intend to develop organs of political power. Part 3a. Serving the people. Food, clothing, hygiene products, baby care products, books, bike repair, home repair, education, medical care, harm reduction, skills or language training, youth services, and child care must be organized for, and or distributed regularly at events. Currently, both the Atlantic City and Chicago chapters have managed to organize weekly food distributions. The St. Louis chapter runs a consistent newspaper, FTP Cleveland organizes housing justice and trans self-defense. These organizing efforts involve direct contact with the community, and meeting forums for political discussion and planning. One of the best examples is back in Atlantic City, where once a month there is a larger cookout event, in which hot food, canned food, books, hygiene products, clothing, and free bike repair are given out. These larger events serve to conduct social investigations, engage with the people politically, and recruit new leaders for the construction of an organizing committee. It must be stated, while FTPs are known for distributing resources and providing our community with their material needs, that is not the end goal in and of itself. In actuality, we reject organizing practices of economism, i.e. red charity, and stress that while it is both good and imperative to provide aid, the programs and institutions we set up have the explicit objective in reaching a higher stage of development through forming organizing committees. By itself, economic or material aid in the end is not revolutionary, nor is it an exercise in self-governance if the people are not given the power to organize for their own interests, and to resolve their own problems. The resources we provide may represent a material base for the project, but it is power we are after, not materials. Part 3b. The Formation of Organizing Committees. Organizing committees are comprised of the politically advanced members of the community, those who volunteer to help in our programs, and those who assume principled leadership positions at events. They are typically well-known by the community, already active in their own pursuits for change, and have an acute political understanding of the problems their community faces. They will be eventually given full control over the FTP branch in their part of the city, as they are gradually trained to become leaders with a higher revolutionary consciousness. They listen to the needs and ideas of the people, and help decide what material needs must be organized and distributed by FTP. Eventually, they will be tasked with helping to draft a list of demands against an institutional power, and will be primarily responsible for moving the people to mobilize. They will be engaged in constant political education and will serve as the primary basis from which the revolutionary organization will recruit new cadre. In the year 2022, the Albany Park Division of FTP Chicago has an organizing committee, known as the APOC, and it is made up of community members who make consistent effort to be a part of our organizing and serve the people projects. However, while it is an organizing committee, or an OC, in name, the APOC's capacity to carry out the roles and tasks of organizing committees listed in this document is still developing. Comrades should be reminded that the development of an OC's capacity to self-sustain and to self-govern is a long, protracted effort, and FTP organizations should not be discouraged if they do not see fast results in this development, even if they are seeing high community turnout at Serve the People events. It should also be noted that comrades should not conceive of their OCs as always being the development of just one program, campaign, or group. 
In most cases, a community will have a broad variety of progressive community programs, and even a broad array of revolutionary organizations all who contribute materially to the foundations of a mass base area. It is likely that our comrades in large and well-organized cities will be required to collaborate and co-organize with many of these groups, and the formation of a stable and effective OC will be the development of a united front coalition of organizations who all serve the people in a given area. In this circumstance, FTP comrades' abilities to network effectively and consolidate a political line amongst the coalition that is in accord with our revolutionary goals is a necessary step. Coalition development should be done concurrently with the development of our own organizing and serve the people programs. The concurrent dialectical development FTPs and their coalitions will lead to a deeper and more rounded connection with the community, a more widely developed array of serve the people programs, wider inclusion of the advanced masses already participating in political activism, and more effective unity of the revolutionary organizations at play. Building up this organizational and ideological unity can be extremely tricky business, however. Patience in developing our own FTP programming is to have a more serious and impactful role in the constellation of revolutionary orgs, and patience in ideological struggle with said orgs over a long period of maintaining a working relationship must be emphasized fully. We must expect that building effective OCs will require the inclusion of the masses and cadre already active in other organizations, and we must expect the construction of a united front coalition to be a very long-term process, so spend that time conducting political education, not indoctrination, amongst the people and demonstrating the effectiveness of our political line in practice. We must earn the legitimacy required to win the trust of those already organizing for people's power, without simply getting absorbed into their efforts exclusively. Part 3C. The Campaign for Demands. The revolutionary organization will struggle with and assist the organizing committee with the drafting and the carrying out of a mass campaign for demands against an institutional power. This would most likely require a broad coalition of allied organizations and or several existing FTP divisions within a city to effectively carry out. Achievable demands are created based upon the ideas of the organizing committee and the input of the broader masses. This campaign is carried out primarily by agitating for it at events, during engagement with the community at regular intervals, and by delegating responsibilities to the organizing committee. When a victory is achieved, the organizing committee will have effectively won a small amount of power. They can then go on to draft another campaign for change and further organize the broad masses into people's committees. If the demands are not met, and the campaign is ultimately a failure, then the revolutionary organization should not let discouragement and defeatism fester in the community. Instead they must summarize the experience, locate errors in strategy and organizing, admit faults, and rally the participating forces for a stronger attempt next time. A successful revolution will see hundreds, likely thousands of campaigns be waged over a period of decades, and as long as our organizers commit to learning and developing from each and every experience, the revolution is never defeated, even if many campaigns are defeated. The benefit of our method of democratic organizing is that even if the campaign fails, the Serve the People programs remain, as does the organizing committee. They act as the anchor and foundation for building people power. Part 3D. The Formation of People's Committees. Not to be confused with organizing committees, the people's committees facilitate the direct voice of the people in any given area of work. These are the embryonic structures of people's power. It's how the people organize to voice their ideas, concerns, and solutions to their new organs of political power. They can hold their organizing committee accountable, remove representatives at any time, and can serve as the basis from which to rapidly spread revolutionary consciousness among the people. They will serve as the primary means from which to recruit and build support for revolutionary fighting groups. Given that the Atlantic City chapter had only reached the second phase of this process, and that the Chicago chapter is only in its earliest stages of development, it remains to be seen what will be effective, what will need to be adjusted, and what will need to be outright scrapped.
Further practice will grant FTP organizers the knowledge to make these determinations. Part 4. Relationship between revolutionary cadre and organs of political power. Leadership is something that is won through struggle, not assumed. If the people are receptive to this strategy, then they will embrace it as their own. If not, then it will have to be adjusted according to their ideas and objective material conditions. If the strategy does not work, a full summation and analysis will have to be worked through, and given to the people, as well as a rectification of our errors. It is important to state that cadre do not micromanage or outright control the organs of political power. We serve the people first and foremost. We seek to struggle with the organs of political power to reach a higher stage of unity between us, the revolutionary organization, and them, the revolutionary masses. We base our theory on correct revolutionary practice. We do not rail at the masses and expect them to conform to our ideas. We apply the mass line, and we learn from them. We gather the unorganized ideas of the advanced and intermediate masses, summarize their experiences, and by synthesizing them through the lens of our revolutionary goals, we create a plan of action, and propagate the newly organized ideas back to the community. If done correctly, the people will stand behind these ideas and take them as their own, often with their own constructive input and revisions. We must not seek to become the new bosses, the new overseers, the new rulers. We must criticize and rectify commandist and chauvinistic tendencies when they arise in our ranks. We want the people to have their own power, and that is why we are building a revolutionary movement to make that happen. Part 5. Without the United Front, we're alone. Principally, the United Front is the coordinated body of sympathetic, broadly progressive organizations which conduct work among the people, seek to create change, or have revolutionary aspirations of their own. In Atlantic City, the United Front has been instrumental in the success of FTP events. First, all leading organizers are involved in both membership and coordinated struggle with many existing groups outside of their own. Around 10 New Jersey-based organizations and a small number of store managers all give varying levels of support and direct material aid to the FTP distributions. Without their aid and support, the events would be almost impossible. The Atlantic City branch does not necessarily agree on every political idea with each group. But that is not the point of a united front. The united front exists to unite all who can be united. If they are sympathetic to a particular cause, project, or campaign that is being advocated by the FTP group, then they should be organized and struggled with in order to attain a higher level of unity. There is often a tendency among communists, but especially among Maoists, to reject the struggle for unity, instead demanding unrealistic levels of ideological agreement as a prerequisite for collaboration. The MCPOC categorically rejects this model. Instead, we seek to move from a lower level of unity to a higher level of unity. The process of actually implementing revolutionary change will open the minds of many to more revolutionary ideas. If our political line and our ideas are truly superior, then serious people should be willing to unite with us and be a part of our projects. Let the actual practice inform the ideological debates if they must be waged. A united front is the strategy for bringing in all existing struggles together. One of the pitfalls of the revolutionary movement is that each group only works together on occasion. There is no systemized method for combining all struggles. Instead, many resort to fighting and petty competition. We reject this and aspire to learn from the Filipino and Indian styles of building a united front, which have been proven in practice to be the most successful strategies in the present era. Additionally, we ourselves may not have the correct idea about a thing, and there are many lessons to be learned from other styles of work, and other kinds of ideas. We should guard against revisionism, but at the same time utilize what we can to accomplish what needs to be done. The people aren't interested in quarrels among organizations. They want to know what we're going to do for them. Contradictions between groups should be resolved, but ruptures are not necessary if the contradictions are non-antagonistic. 
unnecessary splits lead to stagnation and isolation. Resolve non-antagonistic contradictions through patient struggle, investigation, earnest sympathy, and principled criticism. Part 6. A note on the necessity for armed struggle. The ultimate success of the revolutionary movement hinges on the success of the People's War. We proceed from the long and patient gathering of forces stage, to the strategic defensive, to strategic equilibrium, to strategic offensive. At the current period, we are at the gathering of forces stage. Square 1. We cannot be hasty in our desire to reach the next stage and posture a false militancy which will only result in swift defeat. The people are not only the thrust of the revolutionary movement, but they are also our eyes, ears, and hands. Without the active participation of the masses, nothing will be accomplished. At the same time, we cannot be afraid to lay the groundwork of the people's army. We cannot be afraid to establish working relationships between existing fighting groups of varying levels of militancy. We should develop our FTP organizations, the United Front, and the People's Army concurrently. Why should we concern ourselves with laying the groundwork for armed struggle now? Because when the people's political organs begin to unite the community behind the revolutionary ideas and to take power as a real policy-making force in their area, you can expect that the state, the bourgeoisie, and fascist groups will do everything in their power to take it back. They will use overwhelming violence, even on the most peaceful and moderate of activists. The United States is already swiftly retreating from decades of neoliberalism and slipping into outright fascism. Its attacks against the working class, against the various oppressed and colonized nations of people both inside and outside the U.S., and the criminalization of dissent are all molding into a new era of bourgeois dictatorship. The violence it exerts on the people has no precedent in world history, in both size and scale. Without capable fighting forces, there is no way to resist its onslaught. The stage of strategic defensive, therefore, is a means for the organized people to resist the state when it acts to repress their assertion of political power. It is defensive. But without adequate groundwork, preparation, and training, it will be too late to organize effectively. Strategic defensive means protecting the revolutionary gains, defending the rights of the people, and resisting oppression. We must be willing to defend what we have won. This means we must not be afraid to gather ourselves as forces, and to train and make preparations for violent encounters with the enemy. These preparations may serve us well in any range of activities, from defending peaceful mobilizations to direct encounters with fascists or police involving lethal force. Part 7. Serve the people, organize communities, win power. What will it take to fundamentally transform the ills of our society? It requires the destruction of capitalist imperialism, an overthrow of the bourgeoisie, a higher stage of unity between the exploited classes, and the construction of new organs of political power for the people. It's easy to be against imperialism, but it's much harder to implement a strategy for its demise. The movement of human history can be summed up as the struggle of the oppressed against the oppressor. What we seek to do is not original, or new. It is as old as human civilization itself. But without implementation of a revolutionary strategy, without the construction of organs of political power, our movement will be swept away into the dustbins of history. It will be left in the graveyard of so many other movements before us. We should study their examples, learn what mistakes were made, and figure out how to avoid repeating them. Beyond that, we should be constantly striving for seizure of political power in practice. By answering the needs of the people, organizing them into self-sustaining bodies in which they can assert political power, raising their revolutionary consciousness through deep struggle, and pushing militantly forward through all means available, we can live to see the destruction of world imperialism, and lay the foundations of a new society. This concludes, Developing Organs of Political Power, Revised Edition, by the Maoist Communist Party Organizing Committee. This reading was edited for listening by For the People, Chicago, for the Zine Reader Collective, 
a mass org that aims to make the literary works of contemporary revolutionaries more accessible. Thank you for listening.